I'm out of breath. I can't preach after singing all those songs. <laughs> I, need a, I need to take a break here. Isn't it wonderful to praise God with enthusiasm? I want to thank Ken and all of our song leaders, but this morning we want to thank Ken for really putting his heart into leading us in worship. Amen, church? Amen. I've often said that uh, the church should appoint a deacon in charge of blame. That'd be his only job, the deacon of blame. And since uh, this is my last lesson in this uh, series on deacons, as we as was mentioned, as Bob mentioned before, as we select, as we go through the process of selecting new deacons. If we had a deacon to blame that way, anything that ever goes wrong or something that doesn't get done, this deacon's only job would be to accept the blame for it. Doesn't that work out well? I mean, this would help the church tremendously. I mean, we wouldn't waste any time trying to find out who messed up or who slacked off. The deacon of blame would just step up and say, oh, that's my job, all right, that's my fault. There'd be no resentment, there'd be uh, no, uh, you know, nobody not doing their job, nobody would get blamed, because we always would know who to blame when something went wrong in the church. Of course, this is a goofy idea, and probably wouldn't work because the blame deacon might be out of town when we actually needed him, as happens many times. It does remind us, however, that deacons have many responsibilities and along with these comes the accountability to God and the congregation for their work. As I said, today is my last occasion to preach about deacons, at least in this cycle. And as we go through the selection process of appointing qualified men to this ministry, I felt it was necessary to make one more, one more message. So in finishing up, I'd like to talk to you about the role of deacons in the church and the rewards promised to those who fulfill this ministry well. Now, I have preached about this in Canada, in eastern Canada, in western Canada. I've preached in the Caribbean. I've preached in the northeast of the United States. I've preached in the Bible Belt. I've preached in the, in the northwest, even once in Hawaii. And I'll tell you, whenever the subject of deacons or elders selecting them comes up, there is the usual comment and debate on several issues, but it's always the same. It, it could be in Canada and the, you know, in French Quebec, or it could be in the Bible Belt in Texas, or it could be out here in California. Wherever you go, you always get the same things when this subject comes up. First of all, can women serve as deacons? That's always a question that comes up when discussing this. Secondly, secondly, um, what, what does that mean exactly? The husband of one wife, and that's always the something that people need to talk about. And then in recent times, another question comes up, and it's this. Should there actually be any of these roles at all? Should these positions even exist in the New Testament church? Now, some think this because they look at the Bible and they say, well, we're equally saved, we're equally precious in God's eyes, we're equally filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're all one in the body of Christ, so therefore there should be no differences between men or women. There should be no distinctions like elder or deacon made between members of the church or between male and female. And that, that, that argument or that uh, point of view comes up every time we talk about this particular issue. The argument says that Christ made us all the same. And because of him, we're all one. And we are all worthy and able to serve without distinctions of any kind. 
Now this is truly a beautiful and heavenly ideal. As a matter of fact, it is a pretty good description of what the kingdom of heaven is like in heaven. Where there is no marriage or giving in marriage. Where the children of God will be like angels, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 20, verse 35. You see, in heaven there are no sexual distinctions. There are no roles to be responsible for. There is no oversight of one over the other. All are perfected and all are united perfectly in Christ Jesus. However, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven here on earth, when it comes to the kingdom that's being prepared here on earth to join the kingdom of heaven in heaven, the earthly version of the heavenly kingdom has certain features and restrictions that are not found in its heavenly counterpart. You see, when God created the church, he provided the church with structure. He gave the church a task, and he also provided it with specific roles of leadership. And this idea is evident throughout the New Testament. This began with the selection of the apostles who were equipped with special powers in order to be witnesses for Christ and his resurrection. We read about that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The apostles were the leaders of the early church. There's no dispute about this. And they exercised their leadership in many different ways. For example, they provided the qualifications and authority to appoint leaders in the church. In Acts chapter 6, we studied that a few weeks ago. The apostles, through the laying on of their hands, empowered others to minister with spiritual gifts. Acts chapter 8, when Philip, the evangelist, converted many, the apostles came and laid hands on those in order to empower them with spiritual uh, abilities. The apostles mediated disputes and provided clarification and proper application of Jesus' teachings. We read that in Acts chapter 15. They call it the Jerusalem Council. But what it, what, what it was was the, the church was having a problem. They, they needed somebody to clarify an issue for them and to make a decision. The apostles also provided counsel and teaching to church leaders as the church spread to Gentile nations. In Acts chapter 20, we see Paul the Apostle calling to himself whom? He called to himself the elders of the church and gave them specific instructions about their roles. And so for the apostles, theirs was a leadership in the truest sense. They fully expected the church to submit to them and follow their teaching and direction. And if you don't think that that is so, listen to Paul as he rebukes the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians Chapter 13, verse 10, he says the following, and I quote, For this reason I, Paul, am writing these things while absent, in order that while present I may not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Now, if we are all equal, and if there are no specific roles or positions of leadership in the church, if that is so, then why do both Peter and John refer to themselves and other men in the church as fellow elders? 1 Peter 5, 1, 2 John 1, 1, 3 John 1, 1. The apostles talk to other leaders 
and refer to them as fellow elders. Why does Paul warn Timothy that he should be careful in not receiving an accusation against an elder unless it is well supported? 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. If we are all equal and there are no distinctions, then why does Paul take the trouble of describing what he says is the office of elders? That's not my word, that's the Bible word. The office of elders and give detailed qualifications of those who were to serve in this office. Sometimes people say, oh, no such thing as offices in the church. Well, if there are no such thing as offices in the church, why does Paul the Apostle say that there are offices in the church? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 to 7, Titus chapter 1, verse 5 to 9, that's the word he uses, and the word office means authority, oversight. And why in the same body of instructions does he give detailed instructions about those who were to serve as deacons? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 to 13, we went over that last week. And he even refers to the role of the deacon as an office, an oversight role of a kind. You see, if all are the same, women and men, no leaders, no roles of authority in the church, if that's the case, then why are the elders referred to separately when Luke talks about the apostles and then the elders and then the church? In Acts 15.4, he specifically refers to a group of men called the elders. And why do the apostles, in addressing a letter to the church in Antioch, begin their greeting by referring to the brethren who are elders in Jerusalem? I mean, if there are no roles and no dis distinctions, why address and point out a particular group of men? And why does Paul say that the elders who rule well will be considered worthy of double honor in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17? I don't know about you, but that sounds like leadership and authority and position to me. If there are no roles, then why does Paul instruct Titus to appoint elders in every city, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. And James, the uh, epistle writer, tells us to call whom? Call anybody? No, he says, if you're sick, call the elders and they will pray over you. And then Peter the apostle takes special care to warn the elders to shepherd and to lead the church carefully. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. And then he says to the church that they must be subject to their elders. Again, certainly sounds like there's a leadership situation going on uh, in the midst of the people that Paul is talking to, or Peter is talking to. Again, if there are no specific roles in the church, why all these references to specific leadership roles? And finally, if the New Testament church makes no allowance for leadership in the church, why does Paul say that God gives to the church specific leaders like apostles and evangelists and teachers and elders. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. And, and why would he write to the church in Philippi and address it in this way? He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Now, you might be wondering, why am I going through all of these passages in the New Testament? Well, I'm doing this to show you that for God's kingdom here on earth, the church, 
God has definitely provided a form of leadership. Just as God provides for spiritual leadership in the home, when through the words of Paul the Apostle he says, Wives, be subject to your husbands, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. And I want you to notice one thing. Paul uses the same word here that he uses when a little later he says that the church should subject itself to Christ. So in the first line of this passage he says, Wives, subject to yourselves, to your husbands. Three lines later he says, And the church should be subject to Christ. Now the same relationship that exists in the family also exists in the church, where the Hebrew writer says that the church should submit to those who are over them in the Lord. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Again, the Hebrew writer uses the same word that James the, uh, James the epistle writer does when James exhorts all Christians to submit to the Lord. And so the church is to submit to those who are over them in the Lord, just as all Christians are to submit to the Lord. Same word, same meaning. So I'm saying all of this to reinforce the idea that God has provided structure and organization and leadership for the family, which is the basic unit of society. Without this structure, without this leadership, there is chaos in the family, which translates to chaos in society. And without structure and leadership in the church, which is the preview of the heavenly existence, there is division. You see, in the perfect dimension of heaven, there's no sin, there's no pride, there's no ignorance, and therefore there's no need for this type of structure or leadership or limitations. We will all be one in Christ, and we will all reign with Him forever over the spiritual realm. And all of us will be in submission to the Father in absolute pure harmony and joy. Yes, we look forward to that day. But in the meantime, in the meantime, God mitigates our sinfulness and our lack of spiritual maturity and our deteriorating world by placing order and structure, not only in the home, but in society and in the church as well. And fathers and kings and presidents and governors and deacons and evangelists and teachers, these are his appointed leader in the home and in society and in the church. And he has provided us with qualifications and responsibilities and resources for these people to act on his behalf through the power of the Holy Spirit, in order to build and protect and serve the family and society and the church. Now, I've taken great pains this morning to establish the fact that the role of elders and the role of deacons are true biblical creations and not just something invented by men to keep women uh, in bondage. And not just some crazy idea invented by the Church of Christ, quote, denomination, quote. If you've noticed, every single argument I've made for this idea, every single reference that I've made reference to to establish this concept has come from the New Testament. Now, I've done this for two reasons. Number one, I want elders, and especially deacons at this point, to take their role seriously. 
Because it's a God-ordained thing. You know, we look at the Old Testament and we're in awe of how God ordained the priests. And how they wore the special vestments and all the stuff they had to go through to be able to serve. And yet we think nothing of being an elder, of being a deacon. We, we think lightly of it. And yet they were simply the preview of the fulfillment which we are carrying on in our day and age. They wore a vestment made out of expensive clothing. We wear Christ. They offered dead animals. We offer a living sacrifice. They only looked forward to something they could only see, barely see, on the horizon. But we serve with knowledge. We serve with uh, appreciation of the truth and anticipation of the fulfillment of that truth. I want our elders and our deacons to take their role seriously because God has given you this role. And secondly, I want the congregation to take these men seriously because God tells the church to do so. I mean, I don't know how many passages, 20? Did I read 25 passages that say the same thing over and over and over again? To slander or to belittle or to refuse to follow their leadership is to refuse to follow those who are over us, if I may quote once again Hebrews, who are over us in the Lord. We glorify here in the United States rebels. We pay lots of money to go watch a movie about someone who defies convention, someone who breaks the rules, who shakes their fist at authority. We applaud. Oh, man, we love that guy. Yeah. Fifteen cop cars get all blown up. And, you know, yeah, the hero. And nowadays the movie is the hero's a crook and the crook gets away with it at the end. And we go, wow, that was such a great movie. But that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, God himself asks us, trains us to be in submission to those who are over us in the Lord. I'm telling you something. If you can't be uh, in submission to those who are, who are over us in the Lord, how are, we, how are we going to be in submission to God? Those who have the responsibility to watch over our souls and those who have the responsibility to serve the body in a very special way have a serious job to do. And they need our prayers, but they also need our respect and our submission. And so as I finish out the series and you make your selections and give them to the elders, let me answer one more question. If the burden of leadership and responsibility for these roles is so great, why take on the work? You know, each man chosen and appointed may have his own personal reasons, but for deacons, one reason stands out among the rest, and that is that their ministry brings certain rewards. For example, being a deacon brings great satisfaction. Jesus said that he came to serve. The image he projected was that of a servant, a servant totally emptied of self and given over to service to the point of death. Did you ever see the relationship between Christ and deacons? Deacons have not only the satisfaction that comes from carrying out their tasks, whatever these may be, you know, the feeling that you get, you know, uh, knowing that you've done a good job, they get that feeling. 
but they also have the satisfaction of knowing that their role matches perfectly the role that Jesus took as a man. If being Christ-like is important to a man, then serving as a deacon is a way that you will satisfy that desire. Another reward is growth, spiritual growth. Christian maturity and development just doesn't come from sitting in class or, or listening to my sermons. I mean, that helps. But that doesn't do the work. A person has to get some hands-on experience if they're to develop mature and effective spiritual skills. Now, don't get me wrong. Everyone in the church can grow through uh, the exercise of their particular skill. I never said that elders and deacons, preachers are the only ones that have gifts. Everyone has gifts. Everyone has to use their gifts. But for those who have the great privilege of being deacons, they have a great opportunity to take on larger and more ambitious projects and responsibilities and experience the challenge that these bring. In Acts chapter 6, we see Stephen being chosen as one of the seven with the responsibility of managing a food program for Greek widows. But a little later, we see him doing miracles and making a witness for Christ before the rulers of his nation. The first martyr. And Philip, another deacon, uh, went on to uh, be a great evangelist and witness for Christ. Some think that being a deacon is a necessary stepping stone to being an elder. I don't believe this is necessarily true and certainly not supported by uh, anything in the New Testament. But being a deacon is, however, a stepping stone to opportunities for greater and more dynamic service which stretch and promote spiritual growth in the individual. If a man is interested in becoming great in the kingdom of God, and I mean great in the spiritual sense, then being a deacon is a sure path in that direction. And then perhaps another reward that deacons receive are spiritual blessings. You know, Paul mentions that those who serve well he talks about deacons. He says, those deacons that serve well. You know, he says that because apparently not all deacons were serving well, even in those days. So he says, the deacons that serve well, for these who do, there is a special blessing for them. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, uh, he says the following, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Do you ever think he's talking directly to you? Directly to you, making a promise directly to you. Not something in general terms, something specific. The blessing is twofold. Those who serve well gain a high standing in Christian faith. Now the word high means good and the word standing means step. A good step in the, in the sense of a position or a rank. Those who serve as deacons have a good position in the faith because they have shown themselves to be good and faithful servants here and now. Does that ring a bell? Doesn't that ring a bell? They have demonstrated that they are good and faithful servants here and now. seems to me that what Jesus is going to say when he comes is, enter into your rest, good and faithful servant. They are already being recognized as good and faithful servants by the church, and so their position is secure as they await the coming of the Lord. And their service and confirmation by the church gives them a boldness and a confidence to act in the Lord. Just like Stephen had boldness and Philip had boldness to act in the Lord. 
Deacons are not timid. They're not uh, unsure about their position. They are sure about their salvation, sure about the value of their work, and they're not afraid to, to launch out in confidence on missions and projects and ministries that will serve the Lord's church. If a man is interested in having a strong faith and confidence in his salvation, then serving as a deacon will nurture these things within him. You know, I am so excited by the potential for service, the potential for growth, the potential for glorifying God in Christ here at Canyon View. And I don't, those of you who know me, my wife will tell you, I don't use the word I'm excited very often. I'm not into jumping around in the pulpit very much. But I am excited. You might not see it on my face, I'm just tuckered out from singing. We have so many talented, spiritual, and generous people here that God does and will use. We haven't even unleashed the power that is here. It is time, however, to prayerfully consider which of our men will we put before the elder so they can entrust them, and I really mean entrust them, with the blessed and God-anointed role of deacon. Please do this with care. And pray also for those men and their wives who already serve in the capacity of deacons here in the church. And pray for our elders that they will discern correctly the direction of the Lord in selecting the right men to appoint to this high calling. And while you ponder these things, I want you also to think about your own life and how it stands before God today. I want you to think, have you begun serving the Lord as a Christian yet, or are you still putting off for another day the command to turn away from your sins and surrender, submit, not to elders, but to God in baptism? Or have you begun serving Him with your best? Are you still giving Him what's left over, what you have to spare, what costs you very little, or are you giving Him your best? Or are you... Or have you rather begun serving this body, this church family here yet? Or are you still on the sideline, merely a spectator, safely sitting as a visitor and not yet fully engaged with us here at Canyon View in the work of the kingdom? If your thoughts lead you to come forward, if your thoughts lead you to pick up a card and write something down, a prayer request, whatever it is, then we will sing a song of invoca invitation at this time to allow you to Decide how you will respond to this message. Please do, if you need to, as we stand and as we sing this song of encouragement, song of encouragement, song of encouragement, song of encouragement.